have baptisms in two weeks. We baptize believers. If you're a Christian and you've never been baptized in water, then why not? Uh, we would uh, love to baptize you. You can see me if you have any questions. If you have kids or students, David and Penny will be talking to them about that as well. So if, you, if your child is expressing interest, you can run that. Uh, you can coordinate that with David and Penny. And also next Sunday, we'll get back on our schedule at these Sunday night gatherings. If that was something that you were uh, wanting to be a part of, next Sunday at 5 o'clock, uh, we'll be in here. So last week we looked at Genesis 12. We said in Genesis 12 everything uh, in terms of the scope of the Bible narrows. It goes from universal to very particular. One man, Abraham, and then one line of his descendants, uh, the nation of Israel, the Jewish people, from Acts 12, or excuse me, from Genesis 12 through Acts 9. All of the Bible is focused on that one man and on his family. We say God called him out of all the peoples of the earth. God called him and he gives them this Promise. Here's four things I want to do to you or I want to do for you. He promises him uh, children. He promises him wealth. He promises him land. And God promises him influence or to make a name uh, for Abraham. And then God also says there's some things I want to do through you. I want you to be a blessing. I'm going to bless people who bless you and curse people who curse you. And then the, the big one is through you all nations of the earth will be blessed. He said that was the point of Abraham's calling was that last promise that through Abraham and his descendants, all nations on the earth would be blessed. And we said that was finally realized uh, in Jesus, who was a Jew, who was from the line of Abraham, and through him we have access to the Father. Uh, today what we want to do is look at two episodes with Abraham and his nephew Lot. If you remember last week, we said Abraham and his wife Sarah. I'm going to say Abraham and Sarah. In, our, in Genesis 13 and 14, it's Abram and Sarai. God hadn't changed their name yet, but it's easier for me. Abraham and Sarah. Um, Lot's father, Haran, was Abraham's brother. He died, and Abraham and Sarah take Lot in kind of as their own. And when they move to Canaan, Lot comes with them. And so we want to look at a couple of stories that involve Abraham and his nephew. So starting in verse 13. So Abram went up from Egypt to the Negev with his wife and everything he had, and Lot went with him. Abram had become very wealthy in livestock and in silver and gold. From the Negev he went from place to place until he came to Bethel, to the place between Bethel and Ai where his tent had been earlier, and when he had first built an altar, where he had first built an altar. There Abram called on the name of the Lord. Now Lot, who was moving about with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, but the land could not support them while they stayed together, for their possessions were so great that they were not able to stay together. And quarreling arose between Abram's herders and Lot's. The Canaanites and the Perizzites were also living in the land at that time. So Abram said to Lot, let's not have any quarreling between you and me or between your herders and mine, for we are close relatives. Is not the whole land before you, let's part company. If you go to the left, I'll go to the right. If you go to the right, I'll go to the left. Lot looked around and saw that the whole plain of the Jordan toward Zoar was well watered, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself the whole plain of the Jordan and set out toward the east. The two men parted company. Abram lived in the land of Canaan, while Lot lived among the cities of the plain and pitched his tents near Sodom. Now the people of Sodom were wicked and were sinning greatly against the Lord. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had parted from him, Look around from wherever you are, from where you are, to the north and south, the east and the west. All the land that you see I will give to you and your offspring forever. I will make your offspring like the dust of the earth, so that if anyone could count the dust, and your offspring could be counted. Go, walk through the length and breadth of the land, for I'm giving it to you. So Abram went to live near the great trees of Mamre at Hebron, where he pitched his tents. Then he built an altar to the Lord. So if you remember last week, we said Abraham was in Egypt. There was a famine, so he goes to Egypt. He takes Sarah. He lies about her being his wife because he's trying to protect himself. And then Pharaoh takes Sarah into his house to be his wife. God curses Pharaoh for that. Pharaoh finds out, and he tells Abraham, you should leave. And he gives him a bunch of stuff and says, get out of here. And so now Abraham, Abraham was already doing okay, and now he's doing really well. We said wealth in this time is measured in livestock, precious metals, and people. And we'll see as we read, Abraham's got all of them. So he's got these massive herds um, of cattle. He's got sheep. He's got all of this stuff, and so does Lot. Whoever blesses Abraham will also be blessed. So Lot's gotten rich because of his association with Abraham. And there's just not enough room 
for their flocks to graze. And so what Abraham says is, well, let's, let's just part company. So think about that in your mind. So Abraham is Lot's uncle. He's taken him in and taken care of him for however many years. God has promised Abraham a particular piece of dirt. He said, hey, you're going to have this. This Canaan is yours. And then he says to Lot, there are other people in the land too, so it's not just them that they're trying to figure out who goes where. It says the Canaanites and this other tribe, the Perizzites, are there. And so you've got, there's a lot of things that are at work here for Abraham. And he chooses to let Lot make the choice. I don't know how things work in your house. Like for us, we've got, we have four kids, and so if we've got one slice of cake left, one kid gets to, and two kids want it, one kid gets to cut it, and the other kid gets to pick which piece he wants. That's how we do it to try to make things fair so nobody stacks the deck. That's not what Abraham does at all. He says, you pick and I'll take whatever is left over. He doesn't even divide the land. He just They're standing there and they're looking to the east and to the west and he says, you pick whatever you want and I'll take what's left over. To me, this huge demonstration of faith. Last week we saw Abraham stumble a little bit uh, with his faith when it came to telling the truth about Sarah. This week we don't see that. God's promised him land, and rather than grabbing onto Canaan for himself and saying, hey, this is what God has told me I can have, so you go somewhere else, we see him very open-handedly saying, "Take you pick Lot, and I'll take what's left. He has a massive demonstration of faith. Um, he, Hebrews 11.1 1 says, faith is confidence, or it's assurance. Those are synonyms for faith. In the Bible, when you see the word faith, almost every time you could stick the word in, trust in its place. Or if you see the word believe, almost every time you could stick the word trust in place of belief. Not every time, but almost every time you can do that. Faith equals trust. Belief equals trust. When we hear words faith and belief, a lot of times we think of thoughts and feelings. This is what I think, or this is how I feel. And in the Bible, honestly, it's irrelevant. So in the Bible, when you hear words like faith and trust, this is what you need to think of. So we say... Yeah, I believe that this chair can support my weight. That means, yeah, I think so. And I'm standing here. What the Bible wants you to say is, I believe the chair can support my weight. This is biblical faith. It's actually standing on the chair. Standing on the ground, that's, that's nothing. It's what you think. God doesn't care. What he wants to know is, do you believe this to the point that you're willing to put your weight on it, that you're willing to wrap your life around it? And if the answer is yes, then that's biblical faith. That's trust. Trust demands to be expressed. Otherwise, it's just thoughts or feelings, which, again, play no part in this. It's what am I willing to base my life on? What am I willing to wrap my life around? We see that with Abraham. He believed God. He said, I'm willing to wrap my life around him. I'm willing to move from one country to the next. That's, that's demonstrating my belief or my trust in him. I'm willing to say, even at 75 years old, that God's going to give me a son. I'm willing to base my life around that. He struggled some with the kid thing. We see it in these other areas, though. He's rock solid in his belief, in his trust of God. So, again, what I think or what I feel are secondary. What am I basing my life on? That's primary. There's a place in Romans 10 that says, anyone who confesses that Jesus is the Lord will... Um, and believes in their heart that God's raised him from the dead, will be saved. And so sometimes people say, well, I can say that. Jesus is Lord, so I'm good, right? And yeah, God raised him from the dead. That word belief, though, has the idea of standing on the chair. Are you willing to base your life on the fact that Jesus is the Lord and that God raised him from the dead? James 2.19 says that even demons believe, they, have, they acknowledge that there is one God. That's not enough. What God wants to know is, are you putting your weight on the fact that there's one God? And that I'm him. So the question for us this morning is, where are you trusting God right now? Right now, this morning, where are you trusting him? Is there a place where you're standing on the chair? A couple of options. These may or may not apply to you. This one, for sure, won't apply to everybody. When there's a fork in the road, when there's a point of decision, it's an opportunity to trust God. Those things are not daily for us. For many of us, they're not even weekly. But there is a bit of a transition when school's out. So people kind of start looking around at some different things. You may find yourself at a fork in the road, at a point of decision. And in those moments, it's an opportunity for you to stand on the chair. What does that look like? Jesus is a great example. When he's in the garden of Gethsemane, the last night of his life, he's praying. You remember this? He, he takes a couple of the disciples and he pulls away to pray. Mark 14 says this. Jesus praying, Abba, Father, Jesus says, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, 
but what you will. There's the picture for you. When you're in a point of decision, when you're at a fork in the road, that's what you need to do. That's what it looks like to trust Jesus or to trust God, to stand in the chair. First thing, acknowledge who God is in your relationship to him. Abba, Father, everything is possible for you. So the first thing is I acknowledge that I'm a son or a daughter. That's what's most important and most true of me is I'm a son of God before I'm anything else. Before I'm a pastor, before I'm a husband, before I'm a father, before I'm anything else, I'm a son of God. And so I acknowledge that first, Father. And then I acknowledge the things that are true about who God is. Everything's possible for you. You love me, you're good, you're kind, you're wise, whatever those things are, those things are true about you. And so when it comes time for me to make this decision, I'm going to do it in light of who I am to you as your son and in light of who you are to me, your God, your all of these attributes that we know to be true. And then the second thing I'm going to do is I'm going to tell God what I want. That's what Jesus does. Take this cup from me. This is where most of us stumble. We feel like it's arrogant or it's presumptuous or it's selfish or it somehow lacks humility. Or We, we won't tell God what, what we want. That's why once a year I make you stand up and ask what you want for your birthday. I want you to have to say, this is what I want. This is, and for some of you it's brutal to have to say, this is actually what I want for whatever reason. Many of us are uncomfortable saying to God, this is what I want. Many of you have kids. How many of your children have a hard time asking you for what they want? None of them. It's what they do. For us, it's the same relationship. You don't, I'm not saying be a brat. I'm saying recognize your role, your relationship as a son or a daughter. Part of the responsibility of a parent, of a father, is to provide for his children. Part of being a child is letting your parents know what you want and what you need. It doesn't make you arrogant. It doesn't make you presumptuous. It doesn't mean you lack humility. It doesn't make you you anything other than a son or a daughter. So if you want him to take the cup away, then say it. And then you can move on to the third point. But whatever you want, ultimately that's what I'm going to do. We skip step two often, and we go straight to step three. Well, whatever you want, that's what I'm going to do. We're at this point of decision, and we say, God, whatever you want, and we wind up just spinning around and around and around. If you want the job, then say, God, I'm at a fork in the road. I want this job instead of this one. I want to live in this house instead of that one. I want my kid in this school instead of that one. Whatever it is, when you're at the fork in the road, say, this is what I want, and then say. But ultimately, you know what's best. And if the best thing is for me to go right instead of left, then I'll go right. I'm going to follow you. I just want you to know what I want. What if he's in heaven saying, I'll give you whatever you ask for. And what you're saying is, give me whatever you want. And he said, I'll give you whatever you ask for. And you're saying, I'll give you whatever I want. It doesn't work. You get stuck. You're just doing this. And so just say, God, take the cup from me. I want to go to the left. But whatever you want, that's ultimately what I'm going to do, all of that wrapped in this context. I'm his son, I'm his daughter, and he is all of these things. So if you're at a fork in the road this morning, I'd encourage you, look at, look at it as an opportunity to stand on the chair. Other opportunity, this may apply to more. Circumstances are less than ideal. It's a chance to stand on the chair. It's a chance to say to God, I'm, I'm actively trusting you. What does that look like for me? Here's the concrete one that I've been kind of wrestling through for the last five or six weeks. If you were here in February, Matt Gordon, he's one of our administrative elders, he shared our financial picture from last year. One of the things he said was we had to pull more money out of our reserves than we had planned to do the renovation for various reasons. And so when I looked at that, I was like, oh, okay, so I I knew that. But then I actually looked at it when he shared, and it started swirling some things in my heart. And I realized that I took a lot of comfort out of this money that we had in reserves. It was my, my little pet that I could have over here. When things didn't go well, I could, oh, well, we have this. And it, it was a security blanket for me, which is no good. And so I had to repent of that and put in trust in a bank account instead of the Lord. But then the next thing came, well, what does it look like for me to trust God in these less than ideal circumstances? When we don't have what we used to have, so what does it look like for me to trust him? I got three emails from this guy who does online giving. We don't do online giving. You know that. That's convenient. We don't do anything that's convenient, part of our culture is to make things hard on you as people you can't one woman circled our four times this morning i can't find a parking place like that's us the place where you can't even find a parking place on sunday so this guy meets this guy wants to meet and i push him off for a little bit 
And then I met with him this week. And what I'm thinking in my mind is, and this is what you need to be thinking, if you're under, if you've got these uh, less than ideal circumstances, what does it look like for me to trust Jesus in the midst of this? And that's, uh, there's not a cookie cutter answer. That's dependent upon the circumstances and it's dependent upon your own heart. There's not a, I can't give you three steps to say, here's what you need to do. What you need to be asking is, God, what does it look like for me to trust you, for me to stand in the chair in the midst of these less than ideal circumstances? So when the online giving guy comes in, I, that's what I'm asking. God, what does it look like? Is this, is this you saying, hey, here's a way to here, do this. Here, I'm providing for you this way. It's easier for people to give this way. Most people use a credit card and a debit card. Nobody writes checks anymore, so you need to do this. Or is it, is it not that? Is it a chance for me to try to figure out how to get more money, and I need to move away from it. Whether we do or we don't is not the issue. Some of you will think, welcome to the 21st century. Thank you for doing that. And others of you will think, it's the mark of the beast. But either way, the, the decision is not, it's, that decision is secondary. What's primary for me is, God, what does it look like for me to trust you when circumstances are less than ideal? And again, there's not a, I can't, that's situation specific. All I can do is say, God, you've got to show me my heart. And I need to know if I'm motivated by anything other than being led by your spirit. Am I being led by your spirit in this or am I being driven by fear or greed or selfishness or whatever those things are? So if you in your mind can think through your life and say, oh, there's some less than ideal circumstances for me here or here or here. My encouragement to you in the midst of that, God, what does it look like for me to trust you in that circumstance? What does it look like for me to stand on the chair in that circumstance? Knowing that your motivation is the key element of that. Chapter 14. I'm going to skip the first half of chapter 14. It's a whole bunch of the names of kings that I can't pronounce, and they're kings of places that I, it'll, it won't be fun for any of us to, for me to read those verses. All you need to know is there's four kings, and they rule this area with five kings. And, at the, and, and the five kings get tired of paying the four kings basically protection money. And so they quit. And the 12th, after 12 years, they say, we're done. We're not going to do that anymore. And so the four kings say, you don't get to make that choice. And so they come after them. So this is starting in verse 8. So here's a list of the five kings. The kings of Sodom. Remember, that's near where Lot moved. Gomorrah, Adma, Zeboim, and Bela marched out and they drew up their battle lines in the valley of Siddam against these other four kings. So it's four against five. Now the valley of Siddam was full of tar pits, and when the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some of the men fell into them, and the rest fled to the hills. The four kings seized all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their food, then they went away. They also carried off Abram's nephew Lot in his possession since he was living in Sodom. That's the key idea for us. Four kings defeat five kings, and they take Lot because he was living in Sodom. A man who had escaped and reported this to Abram the Hebrew. A man who had escaped came and reported this to Abram the Hebrew. Now, Abram was living near the great trees of Marmore, the Amorite, a brother of Eshcol and Aner. So there's, there are these guys who are allied with Abram. When Abram heard that his relative had been taken captive, he called out the 318 trained men born in his household, and he went in pursuit as far as Dan. That's a place. During the night, Abram divided his men to attack them, and he routed them, pursuing them as far as Hobah, north of Damascus. He recovered all the goods and brought back his relative Lot and his possessions, together with the women and the other people. After Abram returned from defeating the kings, the king of Sodom came out to meet him in the valley of the kings, or the king's valley. Then Melchizedek, the king of Salem brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High, and he blessed Abram, saying, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth, and praise be to God Most High, who delivered your enemies into your hand. Then Abram gave him a tenth of everything. The king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the people and keep the goods for yourself. Abram said to the king of Sodom, With raised hand I have sworn an oath to the Lord God Most High, creator of heaven and earth, that will accept nothing belonging to you, not even a thread or the strap of a sandal, so that you will never be able to say, I made Abram rich. I will accept nothing but what my men have eaten and the share that belongs to the men who went with me, to these three friends. Let them have their share. So, to be clear, five against four, four beat five, and the four take everything in Sodom and Gomorrah, including Lot, because Lot was living in Sodom at the time. We said before, 
One of the things God said He was going to do through Abraham. Those who bless you will be blessed. Those who curse you will be cursed. So they take, they take Lot, and so Abraham goes after them. He's got 318 men in his household. Again, there's this picture of God blessing Abraham and enriching him. He's got all of these men. He's got a couple of allies who also come with him. They win, and on their way back, he meets two people. He meets the king of Sodom, who he had just rescued, and just rescued the people in his city. And Sodom says, and the king of Sodom says, let me pay you. You take all the stuff, just give me the people. And Abram says, no, I don't want it. Again, it's this picture of faith. God said he would bless me, and I don't want it ever said that you made me rich. I don't even want thread. I don't want, it's the smallest thing that he could think of. I don't even want thread from you. Not one thing, because God said he would bless me, he would make me rich, and I'm trusting him to do that. And I don't want you to ever be able to take credit for something God said he would do. Again, this massive picture of faith or trust, very concrete there. Abraham saying no, just like Abraham saying yes, Lot, you can make the choice. That's concrete, tangible demonstration of trust. So Abram saying no to the king of Sodom, that's a concrete, tangible expression of trust. Then he meets this other very mysterious person named Melchizedek. We don't see Melchizedek for the rest of the Old Testament. He becomes very important in the New Testament, particularly in the book of Hebrews, in terms of understanding who Jesus is. We don't have a ton of time to dig into that. I'd encourage you, if you're interested, read Hebrews 7 this week. It'll explain Melchizedek and his relationship to Jesus. I'll give you a few highlights, and then we'll, um, then we'll close out. This is from Hebrews 7. This Melchizedek was king of Salem, and priest of God Most High. So he was a king and a priest. Jesus also was a king and a priest. Normally, you were a king or a priest. It's unusual to be both of those things. He met Abram returning from the defeat of the kings, and he blessed him. We just read that. And Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. We just read that. First, the name Melchizedek means king of righteousness. Then also, king of Salem means king of peace. So you have this idea of peace and righteousness associated with Melchizedek. Those are things that are also associated with Jesus, both peace and righteousness. He's the prince of peace, and he is our righteousness. Without father or mother, without genealogy, without beginning of days or end of life, resembling the Son of God, he remains a priest forever. So Melchizedek just appears on the scene. As you may remember, we've read through Genesis. Almost every person who we meet, you get their whole family tree. Because that tells you who somebody is, who someone is. We don't get that from Melchizedek. He just shows up. We don't know who his parents are. We don't know who his grandparents are. He just kind of shows up on the scene, which is, which is like Jesus. He's not a priest because of who his dad or his granddad or his great-granddad is. He's a priest because God said so, and that's similar to Melchizedek. Just think how great Melchizedek was. Even the patriarch Abraham gave him a tenth of the plunder. Excuse me, down in verse 7, it says, Without a doubt, the lesser is blessed by the greater. So what the writer of Hebrews is saying is, Melchizedek, if you're looking at a food chain... He's above Abraham. And Jesus is like Melchizedek. So that puts him above Abraham. Uh, Verse 12 says, When the priesthood is changed, the law must be changed also. So what the writer of Hebrews is saying is, Jesus is the priest of a different covenant. The priests of the old covenant were all from this one family, Levi. Jesus isn't from that family. He's from Judah. He's a priest like Melchizedek, not because of who his family is, but because God said so. And so he... Because he's a priest in a different way than Levi's a priest, he's also the priest of a new covenant. Verse 15. And when, and when we have said this, what we have said is even more clear if another priest like Melchizedek appears, and that's Jesus, one who's become a priest not on the basis of a regulation as to his ancestry, so then based on his family tree, but on the basis of the power of an indestructible life. For it's declared to Jesus, you will be a priest forever, in the order of Melchizedek, the former regulation is set aside because it was weak and useless, for the law made nothing perfect, and a better hope is introduced by which we draw near to God. Again, we don't have time to dig too much into that, but just so you know, this picture with Melchizedek in the Old Testament becomes very important for understanding who Jesus is in the New Testament, and I'd encourage you to read Hebrews 7 this week, and it explains, I feel like it explains it pretty clearly what that connection is. The main thing being, he's the priest of a new covenant. And this new covenant is better than the old covenant. It's not based on rules and regulations and ancestry. It's based on the fact that Jesus died and was raised to life, and therefore we all have access to the Father through him. This is what I want us to close with. Interesting to me. God's, can we see that map? 
God said to Abraham, I'm going to give you that land. Can you see where it says Canaan? Can you all read that? So there's a little red outline around it. It's not the greatest map. It was the best one I could find. So there's a little red outline, and that's Canaan, that area. And what God said to Abraham is, I'm going to give you that. And so in chapter 13, when Abraham and Lot, it's, it's almost like they're standing on a ridge or on an elevated place, and they're looking out, and, and Abraham says to Lot, hey, pick, what do you want? Do you see down there where it says Sodom and Gomorrah and Zoar? Y'all see that? That's where Lot went. Is that in Canaan? No. So what God had promised to Abraham was this particular plot of dirt. This is what I'm going to give you. And then when Lot has a choice, he picks a piece of dirt outside of the dirt that God has said, I'm going to give you. It looked beautiful to him. He said, it looks like the Garden of Eden. It looks like Egypt, which is well-watered and plush and and, and, and luxurious. And That's where I want to go. He he stepped outside of the boundaries that God had set for, for his people, for Abraham, and for the people who were connected to him. In chapter 13, it says that um, Lot pitched his tents near Sodom. In chapter 14, it says he's taken captive by these other kings because he lived in Sodom. He'd moved inside the city, which was already known for its wickedness. And so he pays the price for that. He gets captured, and his uncle has to come and save him. Location is so important. If you've ever tried to buy or sell a house, you know that. Location is everything. Location, location, location. And it's important for us as well. Joshua 13 through 21 are the most boring chapters in the Bible. They're terrible. It reads like you're reading a survey, and that's what you're reading. You're reading a survey. Here's this boundary line, and this boundary line, and this boundary line, and this boundary line, and that's going to go to the Sonnendeckers. And here's this boundary line, and this boundary line, and this boundary line, and this boundary line, and it's going to go to the Pains. And so it's just, Joshua is dividing up dirt and saying, each family, here's the dirt that you're going to get. And there's this command in Deuteronomy 19 that says, don't move your boundary stones. So if what God has given you is dirt, boundary stones mark your dirt. If you move them, what are you doing? You're stealing. You're stealing from someone else. If Michelle moves her boundary stone, she's stealing from Tom and Charlene. She's encroaching on the dirt that God has given to them. And so God, you can't do that. It would be like if somebody came and pulled the pins off of your lot and moved them. You can't do that. Dirt was very important for us. Psalm 16, 5 and 6. The boundary lines for us have fallen in pleasant places. God said he's given you dirt. And I want you to think about the, the three places where you spend the most time. So it's going to be your home slash neighborhood, your work slash school, and then whatever the third place is, I don't know. Think about the three places. Go... Click them in your mind. Get your list. The three places where you spend the most time. And I want you to think about those three places as the dirt that God has given you. Just like he said to Abraham, here's what I'm going to give you. Here's the land. Walk the breadth of it. Walk the length of it. This is yours. I want you to think about the three places where you spend the most time. And I want you to think about that in terms of God saying, that's yours. Whether you like them or not. It's where you are now, so let's appeal to the sovereignty of God and say he's placed you where he's placed you until he places you somewhere else. That is your land. That's your territory. Do you see yourself as planted there by God? And what does it look like for you to take responsibility for those three places? What does it look like for you? Jeremiah 29, 4 through 7 says, Seek the welfare of the place to which I've carried you. What does it look like for you to seek the welfare of those three places? Begin to think, do you think that way? I often don't. I just kind of do my life. I don't often walk with my head up saying, God, what does it look like for me to seek the welfare of my neighborhood or the square or wherever my third place is? I don't know if you do or not. What many of us tend to do, this command, don't move your boundary stones, what many of us do is we move them. A few of us move our boundary stones out. That's what Lot did. He went outside of what God had for him. And it cost him big time. Occasionally, there are people who, out of either with the best of motives or ambition or for whatever reason, they stretch their stones out. They're stealing from other people. It places you outside of kind of God's protective cover for you. He says, Canaan is yours. This isn't yours. And so we don't want to step outside of that because we're grasping for other things, even with the best of intention. You may have done that in the past. You may have heard somebody say, the need is not the call. The call 
is the call. So the question is, what is God calling me to in these three places? Not what are all the needs that I see, because if I try to meet them all, I'm not going to make it for very long. But for most of us, that's not the temptation. The temptation is actually to move our boundary stones in. We live smaller and more confined than what God wants us to do. We don't recognize the influence that we have, or we don't see where God's at work, or we don't recognize that he wants to use us in the places where he's planted us. We just say, well, that's just my job. That's, just, that's, how, that's where I pay the bills. Or, you know, I just, I just go in and put the garage door down. I don't think about my community, my neighborhood, where I live. There's not this sense of ownership for us of saying God planted me there, and he wants me to seek the welfare of that place. And so we pull our boundary stones in. And so what that does is it creates these huge areas of untamed wilderness between I've pulled my stones in, and if Thatcher pulls his stones in, there's this huge gap between our two plots of land. It was never supposed to be that way. We're supposed to touch. God divides it all. But we've, because both of us are living small, then it creates these spaces where God's presence is not. Where people aren't. His people, us, are not seeking the welfare of where he's put us. He says to Abraham, through you I want to bless all people. And what he would say to us is, through you I want to bless the people who you're in contact with. Through you, I want to change the circumstances where I've placed you. We want to be thermostats, not thermometers. We want to change temperature, not reflect it. And so there's got to be this picture for us of saying, where has God put me? And what does it look like for me to seek the welfare of that place? And again, for most of us, the temptation is to live smaller. It's my question to you. When you think through those top three places, can you say, yeah, I'm seeking the welfare of those. I, I understand why God has me in those places and what his um, assignment is for me in all three of those places. I know what he's wanting for me in those places. I know what he's trying to do there, and I'm working with him in that. If you can't say yes to that, don't beat yourself up. That's just, I would encourage you to start asking, God, you put me here, so what do you want me to do here? Maybe a better question, God, you put me here, so what are you doing here? Then how do I get on board with that? And then you begin to see yourself, hopefully, as this channel of his grace to the folks who you're in contact with. We want to close with this. Um, Bo, you can come back up. Uh, place is important. So we want to pray for two groups. If you, try to keep this in mind, if you have moved your house or your job in the last six months, so you've moved houses or you've changed jobs in the last six months, we want to pray for you. Place is important. And what we want to say is you've made this transition. For many, it's a huge transition. And we want to pray for God to help you in that and that you would have a sense of why he's done that and what your role is in this new spot. So that's one group. Changed houses or jobs in the last six months. Second, if you know or you're planning to change houses or jobs in the next three we want to pray for you as well. If that's on your horizon, moving or changing jobs in the next three months, we want to pray for you that God would lead you into whatever that is, into that good place where you could say, ah, oh, the boundary lines for me have fallen in pleasant places. We want to pray for those groups and then one other. If you would say you're on the kind of the, this idea of trusting, if you feel like God is saying to you, you need to get on the chair and you're not, we want to pray that God would give you the grace to do that, to trust him in that very tangible and concrete way in that circumstance. So y'all can stand. If you're on the ministry team this morning, if you could come forward, I'll say a brief prayer, and then Bo will dismiss us after this song. God, we thank you for the example of Abraham. He's the father of faith. We saw him last week stumble a bit. This week, he hits a home run. It's just good for us to know you don't have to bat a thousand. God, that you, we don't. God, that you're not looking for perfection for, from us. And so, God, I pray for us as men and women that we would know what it is to be faithful to you. What does it look like to trust you in moves and relocations? What does it look like to trust you at points of decision? What does it look like to trust you when circumstances aren't ideal? More and more, God, we want to be people of faith. So help us to do that. In Jesus' name, amen. Calling me to lay aside the worries of my day, to 
quiet down my busy mind and find a hiding place worthy. You are worthy. Open up my heart and let my spirit worship yours. Open up my mouth and let a song of praise come forth. Worthy, you are worthy. Childlike faith and of my honest faith, of my unashamed love, of a holy life and of my sacrifice, of my unashamed love. Inside the words of my day, to quiet down a busy mind, find a hiding place worthy. You are worthy I open up my heart and let my spirit worship yours. Open up my mouth, let a song of praise come forth. Worthy, you are worthy. Of a childlike faith and of my honest praise, of my unashamed love. Of a holy life and of my sacrifice and of my unashamed love. Of a childlike faith and of my honest praise and of my unashamed love. And of my sacrifice And of my unashamed love Oh, you are worthy You are worthy You are worthy You are worthy prayer just please stay as long as you need to if not have a great day
Grace. 